Welcome to the Proclaim and Defend podcast, a ministry of the Foundations Baptist Fellowship International. We seek to encourage and inform pastors on modern-day topics from a biblical perspective. Our mission is to bring together like-minded Baptists to collaborate in glorifying God through fulfilling the Great Commission. Greetings, everyone. It's Don Johnson with the Proclaim and Defend podcast. Today we are once again offering one of our recordings from our summer sessions at uh, Faith Baptist Bible College in Ankeny, Iowa. Uh, this one comes from one of our workshop sessions. Now we, we are in a bit of a quandary. We debated about some of these sessions because there was something went, <laughs> that went wrong with the recording, uh, partway through. There's two spots where there's a noticeable gap in the recording. For some reason the mic Seemed to shut off and turn back on again. We don't know what happened. So <clears throat> there was a long space, several seconds, very noticeable of dead air, so which is a very bad form when you're doing a recording. And we debated whether we should even put these out. Uh, so uh, what we decided to do was to cut out the dead air and just splice it together. And you will notice the speaker will go on and he'll he'll stop abruptly, and then a couple seconds, and then he'll pick up again. So we do apologize for that, but we think the material is well worth your attention. So we decided that we would go ahead and send it out uh, in the form that it is. We can't obviously recover uh, things that weren't recorded. But the bulk of it, I mean, we're talking about a 45, 50-minute presentation. Uh, the bulk of it is there. And you will get the benefit of hearing it. And if you get an opportunity to hear these speakers in another location, we would really encourage you to do so. So that's, that's just the, the disclaimer before we enter into this, uh, into this recording today. So I wanted to mention that because you'll say, what? Why are they putting this out? Or maybe, maybe you won't. Maybe you'll like it so well, you'll, you won't even bother you. Uh, the other thing, uh, we want to remind you is that if you will subscribe, uh, to our podcast, uh, the paying subscriptions. When we do an interview with a frontline author, you will be able to read their article immediately on our Substack, uh, uh, site. And also, if you will subscribe annually, which we would prefer you do, you'll get a bit of a discount on the cost and you will uh, also get the print magazine sent to you in the mail. So we hope that you find today's presentation helpful. And, uh, we're planning to bring others, uh, in the coming weeks. And, uh, we, as I say, uh, uh just bear with us on these, uh, glitches and, uh, that we do pray that the Lord will, will bless you through the teaching that is available through this means, regardless of these technical problems. In Titus chapter two, a familiar passage, we have Paul is writing to Titus, and Paul tells him in chapter 1, verse 5, I've left you behind on the island of Crete to set in order the things that are lacking in the church. So Paul's a church planner. He has his little mission his little mission trip. They plant these churches on Crete, and then he goes on somewhere else to do ministry, and he leaves Titus behind to fill in the gaps. And he goes on through the rest of chapter 1 telling him what those gaps are. First of all, he's to appoint elders. He's to train leadership. He's to teach them about how to respond to false teachers. And then we get to chapter 2 of Titus, verse 1. And we find we find Paul giving Titus this instruction, if I can find Titus in my Bible, giving him this instruction, but speak thou the things that accord or become sound doctrine. What does that mean? He's telling Titus... To teach the new believers, there's a bunch of new believers, things that accord with sound doctrine. He's not telling him to teach sound doctrine. He's telling him to teach the new believers how to live a life that is consistent with the doctrine they profess to believe. And that gives you the context of this familiar passage. Paul then begins to work through different demographics of the church, different groups of people, telling Titus what those groups of people need to learn. And he gets to verse 3, and he talks about the older women. He describes their character, what they are to be like. And then he describes the curriculum, what they are to teach to younger women, familiar to us. One thing I think we sometimes miss 
is the reason for this, the purpose for this instruction. Look at the last line of verse 5. Somebody read it out for us. What's the very last clause of verse 5? Yes, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Sometimes I think we want to disciple women in our church so that they're successful as Christians, so that they have a happy and harmonious home and marriage. And it's about something so much bigger than that. It's that the word of God be not blasphemed, be not contradicted, be not reviled. Imagine this. You have a young mom, and she has a couple of toddlers, and they're out in the yard, and she's, she's losing her mind, right? She's had it. They have, they have stepped on her last nerve, and she goes out on the back porch, and she's yelling at those kids. And maybe she goes out, and she grabs one by the arm, and the irritation and the impatience is very public. What has she just done to the Word of God? She has just lived in a way that's inconsistent with what she says she believes. And that's why this calling of discipleship is so important. At the end of verse 5, Paul states it in the negative way. What shouldn't happen. Look at the end of verse 10. Paul has continued to go through the various groups of people. And I think this final clause is kind of the summation of all of it. And again, it's a purpose statement, this time in the positive. Somebody read for us the last clause of verse 10. Yes, adorning the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. So when all of these groups of people live in a way that's consistent with what they say they believe, the positive effect of that is that The doctrine, the gospel of God is adorned. What does it mean to adorn something? I put up my Christmas tree and I adorn it. I wrap it in lights and I wrap it in ornaments and I want to make it look what? Attractive, beautiful. I get up in the morning and I go in the bathroom and I look in the mirror and I try to do the best I can with what I have to work with. Right? What's my goal? To kind of make it attractive. That's what this is talking about. That as we disciple one another and as we seek to live lives that are consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are making the gospel beautiful. What a high calling. And to understand that God's method for accomplishing that is, yes, the spirit of God at work through the word of God doing the work of God through, through vessels, through channels of men and women discipling one another, encouraging, edifying, exhorting one another. And that's what God has called us to. When I look at this passage, When you as a pastor's wife, when you as a chaplain's wife, you as a mom, you look at this passage and you think, okay, how am I going to do this? How can this actually take place? Let's, Let's stick to the church context as we talk about it at first. So in my church, how am I going to help, help discipleship take place? How am I going to help create a culture of discipleship? Maybe I'm going to teach on it. I'm going to do a Bible study and I'm going to teach on it. Maybe I'm going to try to keep it in front of our women. Maybe I'm going to seek to facilitate it by providing opportunities for that to happen. Maybe at the end of a Bible study, I have women break up in small groups and talk about what's God, what's God saying to you through this passage? How would God have you respond? And that is promoting intergenerational relationships. I used to teach a Bible study at our church in South Carolina, and we had small, we had round tables. And we would intentionally put an older and a younger woman as the leaders of that table. So then what happened when ladies came in and chose a table, some were attracted to that older woman, some were attracted to that younger woman, and I ended up with cross-generational tables with the goal of when they have this reflection time, this response time, They are hearing from each other, and that is the initiation 
of, of these types of relationships. So there are practical things. Hang on one second. I've got to look for my advancer. Oh, I don't have an advancer. Let's try the old-fashioned way. We'll see if that works in a minute. You don't know anything about that, do you, Nikki? She just stepped out. Well, it's not in the drawer. Yeah, okay. I will hit the space bar. Okay. So um, let's say I'm trying all of those things, and let me let me throw in something right here. The handout that you have is a freebie. We're not going to really talk about it, but it is it is kind of an overview of how you might actually start a structured discipleship ministry in your church or in your group for women. What can happen is we can teach on it and we can try to facilitate it and we can realize this just isn't happen organic. It isn't happening organically. And so sometimes God might lead us to let's let's provide a structure in which this can happen. And God has given me the opportunity to start a ministry like this in two of our churches. And this is this was a last minute idea that happened at the at the speakers meeting yesterday. So it's not a beautiful packet that has everything you need, but it's some key documents that have been helpful to us in doing this. We know we don't we can't micromanage relationships, right? But we can and God may lead us to, to create some sort of structure, a ministry in which that can happen. A couple of my favorite resources about this before we move on are Nancy DeMoss Wolgamuth's Adorned. Some of you have probably read this. Um, when, when we began a mentoring ministry in our churches, we actually taught through this with the women first. Um, it, it lays out, she does a beautiful job of unpacking Titus 2. A little bit older book that I use as a text in a class that I appreciate is Spiritual Mothering by Susan Hunt. And then a newer book um, that I encourage in our, our senior projects, the girls have to actually disciple someone for like eight weeks. And this is the, this is the text that they use. It's called Growing Together by Melissa Kruger, K-R-U-G-E-R. And it's an excellent resource to just use in that foundational one-on-one discipleship. Again, that's Growing Together, Melissa Kruger. Actually, I think on the last page of your handout, you might have some of these. And there are many other resources um, that y'all could all share share with me, but those are some of my favorites. And that is that you and I need to be doing it ourselves. Sometimes we teach a class, we teach a Bible study, we pray for growth in this area in our churches, and in reality, we're actually not doing it ourselves. And so each of us individually, as leaders, as lay people in our churches, we need to be looking at, okay, so what does this look like for me, and how can I, how should I, be modeling this, be practicing this in my own life. How many of you are pastor's wives? Okay. As a young pastor's wife, my husband had been an assassin with something I had been taught. And many of you who have gray hair or gray roots have been taught the same thing. Kind of an old school way of thinking is that as a ministry wife, you cannot have close relationships in your ministry. How many of you have been exposed to that? So I had been taught that. I had all the books that say that, right? And I got to Wisconsin, and this family had us over for dinner. And this woman and I, I mean, we just clicked. I mean, like in eerie kind of ways. I walked in. And this was Longa Burger Basket days, right? We had the same Longa Burger Baskets hanging on the same Longa Burger Basket tree in the corner of the room. We had the same dishes. We had the same flatware. We cut, we had decorated with the same colors. Our husband began, our husbands began to see this. So they made a game out of it. So what's your favorite candy bar? What's your favorite dessert? Anyway, we had this beautiful evening together. And a few weeks later, I get an email from her and she said, Hey, I just wonder if God might have a deeper relationship for us. And I was like, eh. I got the heebie-jeebies, right? I'm like, I'm not supposed to do that. Shortly after that, I was asked to speak at a ladies' retreat. Somebody before that, you asked me about Camp Assurance, right? I was asked to speak at a ladies' retreat at Camp Assurance, and guess what the topic was? 
biblical friendship. And they specifically said, we want you to do one session with just the pastor's wives. And I was like, mm-hmm. maybe this is an area God wants me to wrestle with. Now, begin to think about that. Okay, is, is that first lady mentality, I understand the mentality. The mentality was you need to have, if, if you let some people get too close, then you're unapproachable to others. Um, if you let people get too close, you may be stabbed in the back. They may betray your confidence. Um, if you get too close, you're going to seem exclusive. And all of that made sense to me. But a dear friend of mine suggested to me that I, in working through this, study the relationships of Jesus. So we look at the relationships of Jesus. Jesus was followed by the multitudes to whom he revealed himself to a certain degree. Of the multitudes, he chose 12 who walked very closely with him in his earthly ministry, to whom he revealed himself further. Of the twelve, he chose three, whom he took to the the Mount of Transfiguration and revealed himself in an even, even greater way. And of the three, there was one who was known by what name? Yes, the beloved, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I began to study that, and I thought, huh, these relationships, this tier of relationships was not a secret. And so, so Jesus is revealing himself to different degrees to different people, and then they in turn are being used as they rub shoulders with other people. And that just kind of made me think, okay, wait a minute. Is, is the first lady mentality right? Is it biblical? What's it based on? Am I promoting exclusivity? Absolutely not. That girl became my soulmate and one of my dearest friends, but I never hung out with her at church. Right? So that I could minister to people. She was off ministering to people. I'm off ministering to people. But I think we've got to rethink this idea. So that that led me on this journey um, about how what Jesus relationships looked like. You know, the reality is God hardwired us for relationships, didn't he? He made us to need one another, saved or unsaved. People desire relationships. First, grade, first day of third grade, my family moved from Charlotte, North Carolina to Atlanta, Georgia, and I walked into a brand new school, first day of third grade. Best teacher ever, Miss Debbie Cook, had all of us little crumb crunchers stand around the outside of the classroom and go around and introduce ourselves. And as I'm standing there, I'm all, I've always been this tall, right? I've just always been a tall stick. And I saw this really cute, petite, little blonde-haired girl on the other side of the room, and her name was Catherine Hunt. And I thought, she's going to be my special friend. And I began to pursue her, and she became my best friend for third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, seventh grade. First day of eighth grade, my father had taken a different job. I walked into a brand-new school in Jacksonville, Florida. I have a sister, Joy, who's 14 months older than I, and we were in the same grade. And we walked into that school, and it was Christian by name, but most of the kids were not Christian. And I found her at lunchtime, and in tears, I said, I hate this place. They are not friendly. Then in March of my 10th grade year, lo and behold, we moved back to Charlotte, North Carolina. My dad was an accountant, had a couple promotions, went out of public accounting, long story. Went back to Charlotte, North Carolina in March of my 10th grade year. I went back into the school that I had started school in. And what was my thought? I wonder if I'll still be friends with any of those little people I was friends with a long time ago. So what's my point? My point is we are wired for relationship. We, we are wired to have friends. But so often our whole mindset of friendship is not a biblical one. In my friendship pursuit of Catherine Hunt in the third grade, I was not motivated by her spiritual growth. I wanted to have fun. I wanted to be accepted. I wanted companionship. You know all the things I was looking for. Okay, the things that we look for in friendships. And it's often driven by our own desire for security. 
acceptance. That is a very secular or mundane perspective of friendships or relationships. And I'm afraid that too often, even in the church, even in ministry, we have this secular mindset. We crave approval, affirmation, acceptance, companionship. And those are natural desires, but yet so often that, that is our MO for our relationships. Paul addresses the result of this in Philippians 2 when he, he warns the church about selfish ambition. He warns the church about conceit. He warns the church about looking toward their own interest and not the interest of others. So how am I not going to have that mindset about relationships? How am I going to have a mindset about relationships that Titus 2 is portraying, where we are actually helping each other avoid blaspheming the doctrine of God and helping each other adorn the gospel, the doctrine of God. Turn with me to John chapter 15. In the, epistle, in the, in the gospel of John, this section We are nearing the end of Jesus' earthly life. And in chapter 13, we find him gathering the disciples together for the Last Supper. He gets up and he washes their feet. He's demonstrating to them their need for cleansing and also their need to serve one another. And then immediately following that, he begins to teach them. And he teaches them all through the rest of chapter 13, through chapter 14, through chapter 15, through chapter 16. And these are all the last things he wants them to get. He's about to leave them. And these are the important things that he wants them to know and to understand. He predicts the betrayal of Judas. He introduces, look at chapter, look, we're going to be in chapter 15, but look back briefly at chapter 13, verse 34. And in verse 34 of chapter 13, Jesus introduces the truth that we're going to come back to in chapter 15 when he says, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. So he predicts Judas's betrayal. He introduces this idea of loving each other as he has loved them. He, he predicts Peter's denial. He prepares them for his ascension. John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. He talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He gets into chapter 15. He talks about abiding in the branch. So all of this teaching that he's doing. And then that brings us to chapter 15. Verses 12 to 17. And that's our text for this time together. And here he returns back to the same topic that he introduced in chapter 13, verse 34. Interestingly, in the Gospel of John, the word love or a form of it occurs 49 times. And 24 of those times it occurs during this teaching. Barely less than half. So there's an overarching emphasis on loving and loving one another throughout this text. I'm going to read for us chapter 15, starting in verse 12. This is my commandment that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you, that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name he may give it to you. These things I command you, that ye love one another. Pray with me, and then we will unpack this passage. God, I ask for your help. Thank you so much for your word, for how practical it is. Thank you for your spirit that uses it to challenge us and encourage us. 
I pray that I would be out of the way, that you would guide my thoughts and my words, and that you would be glorified and accomplish your work in us, in your name. Amen. I call this passage the friendship sandwich. Maybe a little bit cheesy, but that's what I call it. Right? The reason for that is verse 12 gives us the instruction to love one another as Christ loved us. That's the top piece of bread. Verse 17 repeats the same instruction. Love one another as I have loved you. In in exegesis, we call that bookends. And whenever we see bookends, a repeated thought, we know that everything inside of that has to do with that. And that the author is setting apart a thought, a unit of thought. So we have the top piece of bread, verse 12, love one another as I have loved you. We have the bottom piece of bread, love one another as I have loved you. And in between, we have four instructions or four illustrations of what Jesus' love looked like. All right? Now, as we go through these, you're going to be saying to me, I'm not Jesus. I can't do that. I just want to remind you, how does the passage start? Love one another as I have loved you. As, just as, in the same way, following my model. He's saying, here's the model. Follow it. So here's our friendship sandwich, and we're going to look at four different ways that we develop relationships that facilitate discipleship. Meaningful, deep relationships, not just superficial. And that's what this passage provides for us. The first one is in verse 13. And in verse 13, a very familiar verse, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So right there we find the very first one is to give of yourself sacrificially. The first way that you and I follow this model of biblical friendship, the first way that we develop relationships that facilitate discipleship is that we give or you give of yourself sacrificially. Because you and I know the rest of the story, we know that this is referring to what's about to happen. That was not clear to the disciples. But Jesus is pointing forward to actually laying down his life for his disciples. We see this also in John 10:11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd does what? Giveth his life for the sheep. And we are then told in 1 John 3:16 to follow that example. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. Listen to the next part. And we ought also to lay down our lives for the brethren. So there's this idea of sacrificially actually laying down your life. When I think about this, this principle, and I think historically, I think about people during the aggression of Hitler who risk their lives to hide Jews, Corey Tin Boone, others like her. When I think about U.S. history, I think about during the Civil War, when people risk their lives to provide a safe passageway for slaves, people such as Harriet Tubman. But in, in this political climate today, Are you and I actually being called upon to physically risk our lives for each other? Not really in the United States. I think we're headed in that direction. And we see it happening in other countries, in China, in countries in Africa. But right now, you and I are not being called upon to actually physically lay down our lives for the life of another. So what's the application of that principle to you and me today? I always, I don't mean this in a disrespectful way, but whenever I study scripture, I always like to say, so what? Right? So what? Okay, this is a beautiful truth. But what does it look like for you and for me today? Hold your finger there. We're coming back. But turn over to Mark chapter 10. 
In Mark chapter 10, familiar story, James and John both want to be great, right? These brothers, and they're asking Jesus, in your kingdom, can one of us sit on one side and one of us on the other? And the other disciples get mad because they want that slot, right? And how does Jesus respond? In verse 43 and 44, he says, second part of verse 43, whoever will be great among you shall be your minister, or your translation may say servant, And then in verse 44, whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. So in both of those verses, he's emphasizing, you want to be great, be a servant. And then he illustrates being a servant in verse 45. For even the son of man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. What is Jesus doing here? He is equating sacrificially laying down your life with being a servant. That is how you and I today give of ourselves sacrificially. It's by serving one another. And every one of you might want to start yelling at me, I do serve, right? And you, we could go around the room and you could all tell me the ways that you serve. Magnificent ways, right? In my own life, I've had to step back and say, okay, but does my serving actually follow the model of Christ? My serving is often self-seeking. My serving often has boundaries or limitations on how much I'm willing to do for you. Right? Um, As college professors, often my husband and I, in the evening, one's on one end of the reclining couch and one's on the other end, and we've both got our spread, right? Our computer and our books and our... And until a year ago, sad story, we had a dog that we got for our kids when they were little, and guess who the dog stayed with, right? Um, But he got lymphoma, and we had to put him down. But up until then, I had trained Hobo that when he needed to go out to go to the back sliding glass door and ring a little bell with his paw. I didn't want him yapping. I didn't want him barking. So I trained him. So we're both settled down with our spread, right? And here goes Hobo. Hobo is not a little weenie dog. Hobo is a pit bull terrier yellow lab. And he goes to the sliding glass door, and he puts his paw up, and he whacks the bell. And then he looks around the corner. And then he whacks the bell again. And I am thinking, oh, maybe if I just wait another minute, he'll get up and let the dog out. Because my serving had limitations. It had boundaries. The baby wakes up during the night, and you're like, I'm going to pretend I don't hear it, and maybe Dad will get up and bring me the baby, right? So often in our homes or in our ministries, how, how is our motivation of serving in our ministries wrong? Often we're looking for recognition, appreciation, You pull out all the stops and you pull off a Pinterest-ready luncheon or tea. And nobody even raves about it. Can you see how often I'm doing the right thing, but my motivation is not pure like his? His sacrifice was made willingly. His sacrifice cost him greatly. His sacrifice had no limit. He gave it all. And his sacrifice was completely selfless. It was all for others. So you and I have this opportunity to have biblical friendship. I will use the word friendship because three times in this passage, Jesus calls the disciples his friends. All right. We have this opportunity to put hands and feet to our our statement of love by how we serve others, by demonstrating it. So to follow Jesus' model, give of yourself sacrificially. And then the second one, back in John chapter 15, is in verse 14. Ye are my friends if ye do whatsoever I command you. This is not a petty playground statement. Do you remember being on the playground and saying, you can be my friend if you'll play this with me? That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is, if you're my friend, if you're truly my friend, it will result in your obeying me. Um, He's saying that obedience was a demonstration of their love for him. I think he's also saying that a real relationship with him motivated them to obedience. 
Remember, as we go through this, we're seeing Jesus' demonstration of love, but we've been told to apply it to ourselves in verse 12 and verse 17. So I believe this is teaching us that to follow Jesus' model, to have deep, meaningful relationships, we are to motivate others to obedience. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 mentions this when it says, For the love of Christ constrains us or compels us. His loving me, my loving him, it's motivating me to action. So how does this apply to us? Remember the so what? Yeah, Jesus has the ability to motivate us to obedience. But I'm supposed to be living out this same model. So in my relationships... In my personal friendships and relationships, am I motivating my friends to obedience? How did Jesus do this? If we look at the life of Christ spelled out through all the Gospels, he spoke very highly of his Father. I can do that. In casual conversation, I can point out the sweet kindnesses of God in my life. I can point out his faithfulness. He also loved the disciples. We can do that. He modeled obedience. We can do that. The idea of modeling, think about how many times Paul talked about be imitators of me, be followers of me. And sometimes I read that and think, ooh, can I ever say that? It sounds kind of, you know. But it was a pure call to follow me because I'm following Christ. And in my relationships with others, I should be motivating them. Do you have a friend that whenever you're with her, you go out for coffee or you go out for lunch and you leave that time with her and you think, I want to be more like Jesus because of her. She makes me want to grow. I love what I see in her relationship. That's what this is talking about. It's that person who they radiate the joy of Jesus Christ. They speak of his of his goodness and his kindness. They speak of his promises, and they point you in that direction. So that modeling can actually happen in our speech. But think about this. The ladies in your ministry, your church, your platoon or whatever those are, the the little crumb crunchers in your house, they are watching you. And is what they're seeing in your words and in your attitudes and in your actions Is it motivating them to obedience? That's what we're being called to do. This requires um, grace and humility. Part of this is speaking the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. That requires boldness. Um, I think that 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 part of this requires, I call it relational currency. You heard that term? It's the idea that... Let's say that Pat and I are good friends, and I'm just burdened about something in Pat's life. But Pat and I have been going to lunch together once a month for a couple of years. And so we go out for lunch, and I, she loves me. She knows me. And I've kind of stored up some relational currency to where when I need to, I can say, Hey, Pat, I'm, just, I'm concerned about something. Can I just share it with you and ask you to pray about it? I've noticed this in your marriage. So often we want to lamb blast truth without any relational currency. Sometimes I am concerned about, when Dean was a pastor, I'd be really concerned about something in the life of a woman in the church. And I would talk to Dean about it and I would say, you know what? I'm praying about this, but I don't know that I have the relational currency. Does that mean I should never speak truth? No. But am I the person that God would have to share that? That's part of this motivating to obedience. Not just what I live, but what I, what I speak and how I speak it. So we've seen here that to follow Jesus' model and to to facilitate deep relationships that bring about discipleship, I am to give of myself sacrificially. I'm to motivate to obedience. And then the next one, I am to communicate transparently. Communicate transparently. Verse 15 says... Henceforth, I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known to you. I mentioned you see the word friends three times. You see it at the end of verse 13, you see it in verse 14, and you see it in the middle of verse 15. What's he saying here? 
He's saying, I'm not calling you servants. I'm calling you friends because what the father has revealed to me, I reveal to you. So he is communicating transparently with them. We see this in the relationship between God and Abraham. Interestingly, three times in scripture, Abraham is called the friend of God. So, so why? How do we see that lived out in their relationship? Do you remember when God is about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? What does he say? He says, shall I keep what I'm about to do from Abraham? And because of this friendship, he's open with him and he tells him what he's about to do. Some of the other points that we're talking about have a focus on the other person. I am motivating them to obey. This one has a focus on me. Am I going to communicate transparently? And some of us are like, okay, whoa. What do I mean by that? You and I, to have a depth of relationship with people, to have women that want us to speak into their lives and to disciple them, they have to know that it's real in our own lives. And you and I should be sharing with our children, with the women in our church, with, with, with our co-workers, our husband's, co- our husband's co-workers' wives, whoever it is. Here's what God is teaching me. Here's a, a wonderful truth about God that he showed me, or this is an area God is putting his finger on in my life that I need to grow in. Do you have those kinds of relationships? I had a student this past four years. Dear girl, she modeled this. I would go up to her, put my arm around her and say, hey, how's it going? And she wasn't the fine, good, I'm really tired. She was like, well, guys, really this past weekend just really showed me a sin in my life. I was like, oh, okay, we're going to have this conversation? Yeah, let's do it. That kind of openness and that kind of transparency is often missing in our relationships. And often in ministry, we want to be proclaiming truth, but we want to protect our image. Can I say that everybody else sees your sin? You're the only one in denial. You know, when you're raising children, sometimes it's hard to go to them and say, Mommy was wrong. I was angry. I was impatient with you. Will you forgive me? And so sometimes we think, oh, no, I can't do that because I'm the authority and they won't respect me. That is so wrong. They have already seen it and already identified it. And when I humble myself and say, here's what God's doing in my life or here's a sin I need to confess, that actually builds the bridge of relationship that actually gives me opportunities don't don't go through ministry feeling like you have to have it all together you know when our we have two children who are i call it their faith journey and that faith journey is not looking like i planned for it to look and when it happened with our first child he was a missionary in china and he's our intellect and he began to question his faith and began became dependent on his intellect. And as people in the church found out about this, probably six different families came to Dean and me and said, your family has always looked so perfect. And now we know that you understand our heartache and that we can, we can share this with you and that you can relate. So God uses our pain and God uses our own sanctification process to, to build these relationships and to allow us to be life on life with one another. The last one is in verse 16. Verse 16 says, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go forth and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, that what, whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. He says here, I have chosen you. I see here an intentional pursuit of relationship between Jesus and his disciples. For what purpose? That they would bear fruit. So following the model of Christ means that I encourage fruit bearing in the lives of other people. And really, I think this is the culmination of the rest of the passage. Because Jesus loving them sacrificially Jesus motivating them to obedience. Jesus communicating transparently the truths that God was giving to him. All of this resulted in them being able to bear fruit. And for for you and I to invest in each other's lives and help each other bear fruit, it's going to take time. 
It's going to take conversations. It's going to take this transparency and this humility to help each other bear the fruit of the Spirit. Do you want to facilitate discipleship in your ministry? I think we would all say yes. As Dr. Tillotson has said a couple times, if we gave a quiz on this and said, do you want to be evangelistic? We would all check the box. But are you personally following this model? You know, it's contagious. When you start pursuing this type of relationship with women in your church or in your ministry, it catches on. I disciple a girl. I've discipled students. And she came back year two and she said, can we do that again? And I said, you know what? You're ready to disciple somebody else. I'm here. I will coach you. I will help you. But you go, girl. Multiplying ministry, right? But I have to be doing it. I have to be modeling it in my own life. And you know what? I also need to be receiving it. Every one of us needs to be discipled as well. You've probably heard the idea that all three of us should have three types of Christian relationships. We should have a Paul, the person we're going to and that we're seeking wisdom from. We should have a Barnabas, a peer, who, who we're, we're like in the same ditch of life. And we can truth each other. and We can encourage each other. And then we all need a Timothy. And sometimes I find I'm missing the Paul. The older I get, the harder Paul is to find, right? But I, I think God's design is for all of us to have all of these relationships. And we never reach a point where we don't need it. My husband has served as an intentional intern for the past 15 months of a little church in Des Moines, a revitalization. And I had been praying for a Paul in my life. And there was a widowed pastor's wife in that church, about 15 years older than I am. And I just loved cozying up to her during those months and asking her advice and talking to her. And we all need all of those types of relationships. You are probably thinking with me, as I look at this list and I look at how Jesus did it perfectly, I'm not Jesus. And you're right. You and I will never love sacrificially perfectly as he did. You and I will never motivate to obedience completely like he did. You and I will stumble, will trip and fall over being transparent and humble with what God's doing in our lives. And you and I will not always be helping others bear fruit. But that's the instruction of this passage. That's the bookends to follow this model. And God will never call us to do something he doesn't enable us to do. So with the Holy Spirit at work in me, the grace of God empowering me, I have the opportunity to pursue day by day, step by step, following this model. One one thing and we'll close. I cannot physically, humanly, I cannot have this level of relationship with everybody. So maybe you're a pastor's wife and you're like, you want me to do that with all 30 women in my church or all 100 women in my church? Here's my perspective on that. My perspective through the years of being a pastor's wife, beginning with my dear little soulmate, has been I want to go as far as God allows in following this model with every relationship he gives me. Some ladies don't want that with me, right? If you look through this list, loving sacrificially, I can, I can try to do that with everybody I come in contact with. With every one of you that I rub shoulders with this week, I may never see you again, but I can try to look for a way to love you sacrificially. That, that is not dependent on your response. But the motivation to obedience, that kind of depends on your response. I can do my part, but I have to trust God. God, use that however you want. The same with communicating transparently. I can come up and walk to Kara. Here's the sin in my life. Here, and Let me put a caveat here. I understand that if you're struggling in your marriage and you're in a ministry, a person in your church is probably not the person to share that with. Because you could be slandering the God-given under-shepherd. And for things like that, you might need to go outside of the church for that kind of accountability and encouragement. But there are so many things that I can share with the ladies in my church. If I'm not trying to stay on the pedestal that I say I don't want to be on as a pastor's wife. Did you catch that? 
We say we don't want to be on a pedestal and we spend our ministry lives trying to balance it. I remember I started teaching Bible studies at Calvary and I was just me. I was just doing my thing. And I had lady after lady come up and say, you're so real. I'm like, sorry, you know, but it's the idea of, okay, here's what God's teaching me. And that facilitates these relationships. It makes it real. We are all in the need of growing and being sanctified day by day. So I'm going to go as far as I can in every relationship that God gives me. A woman calls you and says, can we go to coffee? Okay, God, how far will you take this relationship? And I'm just going to have this model in my mind with every person. And with some, we're going to, we're going to develop and grow and we're going to have all four. And, and some ladies are going to be like, you know, down girl, right? Kind of pushing back. That's okay. I can love them sacrificially. I can model something before them. So just just be saying to God, God, you bring me those relationships and I'll go as far as you allow in each of those relationships. My challenge to you as we close is who do you have this kind of relationship with? And I would challenge you to go before God and say, God, lay one person on my mind, my heart. Give me three people this year, whatever you think your capacity is. God, would you direct me to them? And then maybe it's a young woman and you're old woman and you think she doesn't want advice from me. Well, just invite her to lunch, invite her to coffee. Don't go up to her and say, Kara, darling, you need to be discipled. All right. That might not go very well, but I might take her to coffee or lunch and see where it goes. Build that rapport. Right. So my challenge is be, be praying about this and say, God, who who would you lay on my heart for, for this this year that I can pursue this kind of relationship with and give me the grace Enable me by your spirit to follow this model. Let's pray. Thank you for your word, Lord. We, we love you, and Lord, we love how practical and relatable your word is. Thank you for this friendship sandwich, for these truths of how you practically demonstrated your love to your followers. And for the instruction that you are asking us to love in the same way. Enable us. Direct us, lead us to those people that we might be establishing in our own lives and in our ministries a culture of discipleship. In your name we pray. This has been the Proclaim and Defend podcast. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and give us a good review. If you want to learn more about the FBFI, check out our website at fbfi.org or our blog, Proclaim and Defend, at proclaimanddefend.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on the Proclaim and Defend podcast.